Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science through the experiences of the people in these fields. Sometimes if you take one of these fields and you combine it with something that's completely outside of it, you end up with an entirely new field. And that's what we're going to talk about today. My guest today is Karen Fleming. Karen is a forensic artist in Scotland. We're going to talk about how she got into this field and what kind of training was involved. Then we'll talk about a lot of the technologies that are used and some of the projects she's been involved with. All right, here's Karen Fleming. The reason I wanted to talk to you, you're a forensic artist. This was a field that I'd never heard of before, so I wanted to learn more about it. So let's start at the beginning, though. You first studied uh, art and, and painting. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I want to hear about this. Like at the time, what did you hope to do in this field? Okay, so I'd always uh, worked as an artist, um, sort of part-time just doing commissions and in my spare time while having to do various other part-time jobs, which is quite common in the arts field. Um, and the main reason that I actually decided to apply to university to study art at the time um, was because I initially wanted to be an art therapist and I needed a qualification to study that. So I needed my undergraduate degree. Art therapist, what, uh-huh. is, that? what is that? So an art therapist is just a therapist who uses art, basically. So you can go into any other field that a therapist would go into and you use art to just discuss issues or, you know, feelings. Um, it's used in many fields, you know, if you think of something, maybe say a child has had some sort of trauma, um, it might be easier for them to to draw a picture. That's a sort of simple. Okay, way of so it's like a it. rehabilitation type of thing. Yeah, I suppose. I don't know if you use the term therapist in the same way. It's just helping people. Okay, through something. like sort of express or deal with their yeah. em- emotions. Is, mm-hmm. that, is that accurate? Yes. Okay. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay. So that was my initial, um, what I was interested in initially. And as I say, I needed a, an undergraduate degree for that to go because it's a postgraduate level course. Um, and I'd wanted to work in a forensic setting, which would be like victims of crime. And you can go into the prison system and use art as therapy in there. And needless to say, I changed my mind about working in therapy. It just wasn't for me when I realised that it was there wouldn't be a lot of art practice involved, be mostly written and academic. So that I ruled that out completely. And you said you were always interested in art. Like this, does this go back to like when you were a child? Oh, right back to the beginning from oh, okay. school, high school. It's just always been there mm-hmm. for whatever okay. reason. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then you decided not to go the art therapy uh-huh. route. And then how did you discover the field of forensic art? Well, again, that was that was sort of by chance, actually. When, I mean, obviously since I was very young, I've always had also had a fascination with true crime like many people do you know you read a lot of books about serial killers and real crime watching things on tv and so when I was much younger I wanted to be a court sketch artist you know working in the court setting you've obviously maybe seen these drawings yeah 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 
So I always wanted to do this. Um, but it was just one of these things you, when you're small, you're like, oh, I'd like to do that. Nothing came of it. Uh, so when I completed my, uh, my art degree, uh, I, I had no intention of studying again. I wrote that last dissertation and I thought, no way. Um, and I was researching some ideas online for a painting that I wanted to do. Now, I'm an abstract painter and I had this idea to incorporate images of crime scenes into a piece of work. But that's another story that could idea could go on and on. And I actually just was looking at images and the definition came up of a forensic artist. And I, it was the first time I heard it called that uh, I read into it further and then an advert for the MSc the master's course in Dundee so Dundee it's the only university in the country that did this cor- course I mean I don't even know internationally as well because the majority of students are international students and uh, more than home students and I live in Edinburgh, which is around 77 miles uh, to Dundee. So I'd made the decision to apply and commute, which wasn't my best decision. <laughs> that made oh, it very... wow. <laughs> So I was doing a four-hour round trip from door to door, which I wouldn't recommend while studying. It was only a year, thankfully. Okay. Wow, that's, that is a long drive. It was a, well, it was a train, actually. I used to get the train oh, okay. every morning. Oh, wow. Okay. So what was, like, is it competitive to get into that program? What was the sort of application process like? Yeah, I would think so because there's about, there's maybe only less than 10 places per class. And as I say, it obviously appeals a lot to to international students. I don't actually know the application. I mean, maybe a lot of people still don't know this degree exists. Um, Dundee University itself has a really good sort of um, programme for anatomy and other uh, anthropology, forensic, you know, things like that, which means there's very good facilities. But, yeah, very, very small classes. Now, did you have uh, like a science background going into this? I didn't, know, And I wish that I'd known how much science was involved initially I don't know if they've changed things now, but you sort of going into it blind and you're all of a sudden you've got about a month to two months to learn so much anatomy, you know, uh, terminology, everything like that. And you, ha- you are with people who have got that background as well as some people that have got the art background. So to have combinations, perfect. Uh-huh. Okay, that makes sense. So it does start with a, like I, w- I was reading about this and it seemed like, you know, anatomy would be like the giant, you know, sort of basis of all of it. So uh-huh. was it like, how did you, I mean, were there cadavers and, and things yes. like that? Or did you, uh-huh. Oh, yeah. really? We were very lucky. Uh, we actually worked on the cadavers. At the beginning, Anatomy is taught at the beginning and the forensic art students that I I work alongside students that are studying medical art, so doing the same thing. And there's a dissection room and there is an anatomy museum, which you've got constant access to. Then you do your modules such as head and neck and you do your body systems. Um, And I felt very privileged that we were able to work with the body donations, the cadavers, 
um, which are known as the silent teachers at the university. I mean, we don't get... There's medical students that all obviously are first in the queue, so to speak, that actually work on the cadavers and then we'll we still have the full full body. Um and we're they're actually I don't know if you know much about the the teal embalming. Mm, no. Well this it's a type of embalming that means that the body moves more like it does in life. So it's good for like medical students. It's not got that real rigid Oh, okay. Um, so it's called teal. I think it's T H I E L. Oh, so that's okay. the type type of embalming that they use. Okay. Yeah, I hadn't heard of that. Coming in with without this science background, what was what was it like working on the cadavers? Was that a bit of a shock for you, or did you get used to it fairly well, quickly? I, I thought the thing is, I never had any thoughts that um, I wouldn't I wouldn't be okay. But then you still think you say that, but then I maybe would walk in and I would, you could pass out. But there's there was no problem for me at all. It's just was just something that we did, and due to the embalming that they do, there's not that really bad smell within the lab or or anything um, that I know can upset people. But no, it was just a real privilege that you know these people had donated their bodies. And basically, they wanted these sort of studies to be done. Yeah, I've had a previous guest on the show. Her name's Gina Bond. She actually works with in, in, a, in a body donation facility. Uh-huh. Uh, that's like part of her job. And she talked about how, you know, they're very respectful of the, you know, the bodies and the, and the families as well. And it's just a very, you know, they treat it as, as the gift uh, mm-hmm. that it is so and after a certain length of time the there's a service at the university where the families can come and with um and there's um whether they take the body parts and have a proper burial obviously mm-hmm. everything's kept mm-hmm. um and it's just it's it's very it's very well looked after did you have to learn all of like all the bones and all the muscles and the vessels and you know, the muscles, the origins and insertions and all of that stuff that like a medical student would learn in anatomy class? Initially, we had to do the sort of basic full anatomy, um, what they call basic, but if you're coming in from nothing, terminology. I was more head and neck because I was, uh, it was to do with facial reconstruction identification. Oh, of course. Yeah, I'm actually teaching myself at the moment because I've I'm actually starting a master's in September and this will be it in human osteoarchaeology. So I need to know more about muscle attachment and various things for that. So then after the anatomy portion, uh, what what other areas are part of the the studies in in this master's program? It's just various facial uh, recognition techniques such as uh, composite facial sketch production, that's from witness statement, and analysing CCTV, comparison of that, and things like artificial age progression that might be used if a missing person, for example, they would, would get a photograph of some younger, maybe some relatives, and artificially uh, age them. And much of the work's done digitally, On, but we also have classes in life drawing and you sketch in the anatomy museum and things as well. 
that kind of ties in then to the, my next question. Mm-hmm. Then, so forensic art, from what I was reading about it uh, before we before we talked here, uh-huh. so it kind of includes four main areas, mm-hmm. and I think you've touched on these. So you've got the facial reconstruction, which is what you really were going into. Yes. All right, composite art, the postmortem depiction, and then the modification imaging. Now that last one, that's the aging that uh-huh. you were just talking about, right? Okay. Yeah. What is what is composite art? So that is uh, when we talk about a composite sketch, it's what it's what's created from a witness or a victim's statement. So maybe the, a description when they're remembering the perpetrator to a crime or event. Okay, so that's the kind of stuff you see on TV usually. Yes, uh uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 sometimes <laughs> they can look a bit <laughs> ropey, but personally, I prefer the, the sketches and the, the sort of digital way they try and do it now when they've maybe got a database and they'll pick a nose and a mouth and things. Okay. There's the various ways that they do it now. Okay, so it's more it's more digital than just kind of it's, freehand drawing? It can be either or. I think maybe even some uh, police departments have just police do their own sketches. So they vary in quality, I would say. Okay. Do you have to learn how to interpret, like, because you're getting the information from another person and you're making a drawing or a sketch from that. Do you have to learn how to interpret what they're telling you? Is that part of it? Yeah, because it can be very sensitive. I mean, if if it's somebody who's been a victim of crime, uh-huh. um, there's just got to be a way that, you know, it's sensitive to that person. And memory's not always great. So you, you have to really just take on what they're saying and you can't lead any questions or anything um so you really just have to take on what their their interpretation is okay i imagine that takes some practice mm-hmm. yeah all right then what about the uh the, the modification imaging the, the aging uh how do, you, how do you learn how to do that that's the done sort of digitally as well um okay it, it's so if you're aging a person what we would like to see if it was a child, for example, is maybe a couple of images of a brother or sister, the parent, and sort of look at that. And then there's various things happening, you know, in different ages of growth um, that we look into, like teeth, for example, will change the face shape. Just just basic aging uh, based on other images and the family likeness. So you sort of compare it to the people in the family that are, that yeah, are older. Try, try and do best to, to work something out that way alongside okay. other things, yeah. All right. I, you know, I heard you in, I think it was an article that you'd been interviewed for, and you were talking about uh, facial reconstruction. Uh-huh. And you mentioned the Manchester method. Yes. All right. Can you explain what that is? Currently, there's there's three methods that are used. Um, there's Russian, American, and the Manchester method. The difference is, like, the Russian method requires a huge deal of anatomical knowledge, and it's all about development of the skull, the neck musculature, which is vital. This is done by shaping muscles and glands and the cartilage. Um, and the American method uses a soft tissue depth data and again, you need a huge deal of knowledge and training because I think the American method, there's x-rays, ultrasound techniques. 
but they're less common due to the complications involved. Um, so now the Manchester method, which is the most common, and what the Manchester method is, is you're considering the facial muscles and the soft tissue, uh, soft tissue thickness. So what would you do is you actually place pegs to the skull and each peg is a different length. And these represent the tissue depth, which is relevant to the anatomical point on the skull. So we work from a measurement chart. It's a standard tissue depth measurement chart based on age and ethnicity and things. And then when all these pegs are in and the muscles are on, the layer of skin is added over the tissue depth, uh, to the tissue thickness. And that gives you the, the sort of facial shape. But you need to know the, the age roughly and the the sex of the skull to work from these charts okay so the charts show you how thick the muscles are in the different areas of the skull is that is that yeah right? different thicknesses and different age groups and and sex okay and then are you actually applying like is this done digitally as well or do you do it, it like can with, do both do uh, like with clay or something like that what 3D is, is clay generally, and you can do, you can use like programs such as Photoshop to to do the the 2D. So you're measuring the skull physically and putting your measurements into, um, say, Photoshop, and then drawing in the peg length, and then we work it that way. And you're still measuring the nose and all the eye. Everything's done the same as it would be in a 3D. And is this something you learned? Uh, in the University of Dundee program? I actually learned more doing that. I was working uh, with Edinburgh Museums and I did some uh, a lot of 2D reconstruction. I knew the basics and I just, obviously you learn more as you go. Um, so I would say I'd, I'm, you learn, probably learning more when you're physically working um, with skulls or the human remains. So it's more that the kind of stuff you sort of learn on yeah, the job, I guess. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm curious about some of the technologies that are used for mm-hmm. 3D facial con- reconstruction. The 3D printing and 3D scanning and things uh-huh. like that, that's that's becoming very popular in a lot of areas uh-huh. um, as the technology advances. Did you learn how to use some of those things and what, what types of technologies are used? In my experience so far, um, you would get, your original skull um, and use a handheld scanner so you're getting to go you know round the whole skull and getting a complete replica that you're working on obviously rather than the the original skull you would take these scanned images and they're uploaded onto the computer and they'll be converted to relevant files before they get sent to the 3d printers and i don't know if you know much about how the 3D printer works, but it's a little bit, but not yeah, much. I guess you know you get that you get plastic and it's wrapped in a spool and the material sort of fuses together layer by layer. It takes a long time and then it builds up your 3D object. So that's more what I've been experienced with, but I know that CT scans are also used, but I don't really have any real experience with this method yet. But that's something I'm hoping to well, there's all these things I was going to be doing before. Um this pandemic and that was one of them uh, with Edinburgh University. Do you have to, like with using CT scans, I mean, do you have to actually, I'm not sure how to word it, like can you scan a skull that's, you know, say still buried? 
Is that is it powerful enough to do that? Uh, I, I wouldn't know. I, I don't know if it's ever really been done. It would normally be excavated and, and taken to the relevant uh, okay. labs or that. Yeah, it's quite possible. Anything they seem to be doing anything now. Huh. I'll look okay. into that myself, actually. Okay, so it seems like then CT scanning is kind of the cutting edge technology these days. Yeah, I suppose that it's just what people prefer, um, and it's cost as well. Mm-hmm. It's always a big thing. I think maybe universities will, if they've got one in particular, they maybe if they've got a department that can do CT scans, I would imagine they'd do that. Yeah, that those technologies are just amazing to watch. I know. They're, they're, they're really interesting. Because when you get the 3D object from the 3D scanner of the skull, I mean, every tiny little detail's on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is great and hopefully costing for these sorts of things will will come down quite a bit. We'll get back to our interview with Karen Fleming right after this. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Dress a Med has been designing and manufacturing high-quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress a Med by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. Now back to Karen Fleming on the People of Pathology podcast. Forensic art is sometimes used in, in, in legal procedures. Mm-hmm. And I, we mentioned the composite sketches a little bit earlier. Are you involved in, in the legal aspect at all? Unfortunately, I mean, we're taught all these various uh, legal things, but unfortunately there isn't a great demand for forensic artists where I'm based. It's a lot more popular in uh, America, I think. But a forensic artist can be used in the courtroom setting, like I mentioned before you know, the drawing before going to media outlets. Right. Uh, and obviously they talked about the composite sketching for identification of a suspect, a CCTV analysis, and this, again, age progression for a suspect. So all these things are used in law enforcement. Okay. I imagine identification of a victim as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh-huh. Right. What's the, what's the CCTV aspect? What is that? Well... If you've got your um, camera on the street, for example, and there's a crime takes place, um, the uh, video can be analysed and there's various techniques analysing if it is that person based on face shape, um, maybe overlapping images, you know, to try and get a a likeness um, to identify the person. It is that person in the area at the time. I think those those cameras are fairly low resolution, typically. Yeah, uh, it's it's probably not always mm-hmm. ideal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. Okay, and and you learned how to do that as well. Yeah, we did that. Uh huh. Are there any other ways that a forensic artist's skills might be utilized in a in a uh, legal setting? Uh, I think probably maybe if the sketch identified the person or. Um, say a skull was reconstructed and it helped find, identify the person. 
which might lead to finding out who committed a crime or just that could have been the criminal, you know, that's that's missing and it's mm-hmm. it's closing that. So it, pretty much it, all of the, everything you learn could probably be taken into law enforcement, yeah. All right, I want to uh, switch gears a little bit here. You were involved in a the facial reconstruction project with like some ancient remains and uh-huh. there was so one of the one of the bodies and the one that you you ended up in newspaper stories about mm. was she became known as Hilda yeah all right can you tell me about this project <laughs> first Hilda. how did you become involved in the project and then how did you how did you meet Hilda how did you meet Hilda um so I'd asked for it was at the time it was for dissertation purposes so I asked for a skull. We had some um, communication with the anatomy museum at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, so they were always happy to allow uh, skulls to be reconstructed. And I asked for a female because I always felt that reconstructions in the past always seemed to be male. And that was the female <laughs> that they had. Um, and it just turned out to be a much more interesting um, project than I thought it would be. So yeah, she's she's still at the anatomy museum, um, and as I said, it was a very limited with time restraints to create what I felt to be like an accurate likeness. So I'm actually working on her again um, in my kitchen. <laughs> um, there is a half finished clay reconstruction. I stripped back oh, really? all the, the wax. I've still got all the correct measurements, so I stripped all the wax off and. Um, did some repositioning of the skull, and I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll go back on my website when I'm finished it. But I've got time to do it. So yeah, if anybody walks into my kitchen, <laughs> sees half a skull, I'm going to get a fright. You, Hilda was in my garden shed for a very long time. Oh really? Yeah, that's the only place I could keep her. I always knew I was going to do it again because I was really unhappy with, and I didn't even want anything to go out to press but the university were just like we need it today and I'm so um I mean it's been fine for me because I've I've got work out of it and publicity but right. um right. yeah she, she's she's getting redone so currently you have the actual skull or is it like <laughs> well, a it's reproduction a, it, yeah it's the it's the um 3d oh okay. it's, it's plastic 3d model I mean um okay that's a little less weird Yes, no, I don't, I don't think I'd be allowed it in the house. Um, cause I, I, so I consider the wax one to be a prototype because, believe it or not, in Scotland we do get some really hot weather and that particular summer it was hotter than it had ever been and working with wax was just, it was just an absolute nightmare. Oh, yeah. So I've learned okay. from that. <laughs> okay. How old is Hilda then, T? Do you, okay, do you happen so, to know? Well, we think she's a druid, which oh, it goes way, way back. Uh, I couldn't put it, probably put it, She's super old. I'm just wondering if I had anything that I could have given you the date. Because I was given the information, I was just given a catalogue number, an estimation of her age and her sex. Okay. And I, I had to do my own research because they wouldn't. I wasn't able to get the skull carbon dated. It was unclear really at the time to when she lived and died. But she was believed to be from the Hebrides in Scotland over the age of 60, but looking a lot older. 
um, than a 60-year-old would now. So since you don't know like her exact age or the exact time period, were there charts then available for the like the muscle thickness and, and the tissue thickness and things like that, like you mentioned earlier? Well, what I was working from was just the standard chart, chart um, for a female of that age. And then this is sort of your artistic license comes into it about um, aging. Oh, I see. You know, what a woman would look like at that age. Uh-huh. Um, I'm just, while I speak to you, I was just saying, I have definitely have got the date. I mean, this was all information I had to go through the library um, at the university to actually find out where the skull was found and who found it. So, yeah, it was found in the 19th century. Oh, wow. It was a phrenology society that had the skull and uh, they'd actually noted that they'd found six skulls of druids from the Hebrides. Um, But we all know that um, phrenology is one of these sciences that now is just considered to be a pseudoscience. So mm-hmm. there's all these various things. What I did learn was that Druidry would have been around 55 BC until they left in about 400 AD. So that's how old the okay. possibility is that okay, this so skull. Is that typical for a project like this? Like you, you've got to do that kind of research beforehand? I actually really enjoy the research anyway. Um, okay. And I, I just felt that the only information I had... I needed to find out more about, you know, what possibly would have been the lifestyle, um, why she would look a certain way, you know, due to lifestyle. And because she had these, it's she's actually quite unusual looking, to say the least, because of her, her jaw. Originally, it was just noted that her tooth loss would have been in life, but looking more at it, it's like she had some sort of syndrome uh, in her lower jaw. So that would be really interesting to look into. Yeah, I was curious more. about that. Like, you mm-hmm. could tell that she had lost the teeth uh-huh. while she was still alive. Yes, definitely. Uh huh. And that she had this prognathism or protrusion, which is really, really severe, which gave this really unusual appearance. Um, but as we don't know, it could have been some sort of syndrome or that it caused her tooth loss, you mm-hmm. know, a bite problem. So it sounds like, you know, Hilda's story is not not quite over yet. No, I actually uh, had somebody get in touch with me recently, an archaeologist that was really interested in um, myth and, and also Druidry and things. So mm, okay. um, if anything comes of it, I'll maybe look into it a bit further because it's just this, we could, I could see the jaw in the skull, but it's when you start to build it up, you can really see how it would have looked. You know, on, on your website, which mm. I'm going to link in the show notes because you can, people can go there and actually look at some of your art. Uh-huh. Uh, right. Uh, so on your website, you mentioned a project with the Surgeons Hall Museum mm-hmm. in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's what's the status of this project? Did that get delayed because of the pandemic? or is It that... did, yeah. Oh, so okay. I don't know if you know much about Surgeons Hall Museum. I don't know anything about it, actually. Um, uh, well, just to... to what they are is that they're owned by the Royal College of Surgeons who were founded in 1500 something 
It's been open to the public since about 1830 and it's got bones, tissue specimens. It's Scotland's one of Scotland's oldest museums, but it's if you're into anything, interested in anything to do with pathology, dentistry, Birkin hair, the, the grave diggers, you know, it's it's the it's it's a fantastic uh, uh, museum. So I was in early would it been early twenty twenty now all this started. It must have been. <laughs> um, I began organising a project with them that I was going to scan and photograph skulls from their collections that showed obvious signs of trauma or disease because that's what I'm particularly interested in. Um, and I was going to recreate some 2D and 3D images, which was going to culminate in an exhibition this year. But sadly, due to this pandemic, that's on, on hold. And due to their programmes changing, I'm unable to say when it'll happen. But I, it will happen. <laughs> I think I read something in there that you were studying the effects of, was it leprosy on the... I did that. Okay. Yeah. And- that actually affects the bones? It showed on the skull, yes. Um, oh. On, you know, anything that's on the surface of the face. So when we see images of people with leprosy, they've quite often got these lesions. And mm. this particular ancient skull that I worked on for Edinburgh Museums that was uh, excavated from St Giles Cathedral had quite a severe lesion which you can see, I think there's an image of the skull on my website as well, to where that would have been placed. So, all right, well, once this project gets rolling again, and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I I look forward to hearing hearing more about that. And Mm -hmm. actually, sometime I might have to make a trip to Scotland. Oh, yeah, and you have to go there. (laughs) It's very quiet. Edinburgh's very quiet at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) I bet it is. It's (laughs) unusual. Yeah. Okay. Um, the, the last thing I wanted to ask you then, if someone were interested in a career as a forensic artist, because I, I got to be honest, when I was in high school, if I would have heard, because I was interested in art and mm. biology, and if I would have heard of something like this, I, I would have been all over it. You're in the right place for it as well. Yeah. So, <laughs> I know, I know exactly. I would have been the same, I think. Yeah. So mm-hmm. if, if someone were interested in this career, uh, what would be your advice for them? I don't know how it works with people just getting into to train on the job. I would probably say that uh, qualification is is essential. So research universities um, or colleges, um, I would say you need to have some good artistic ability and will likely need to show a portfolio uh, at work when you're applying. And uh, you're expect, um, you really need to have a basic knowledge of anatomy and the terminology, although you will be taught and don't expect to fall straight into the perfect career. Um, You might need to do some intern, voluntary unpaid work uh, to build up a portfolio, a casework, Um, because when you apply to some, uh, say, for example, Interpol or the police or something, they would maybe want to see evidence of some sort of casework that you'd been involved in. And Lots of academic reading and be proficient in creative software and freehand drawing. So science and art, basically. (laughs) All right. (laughs) That sounds good. All right. Yeah, this has been fascinating. Uh, Karen Fleming, thank Mm -hmm. you very much for being here today. Thank you. 
Great big thanks to Karen Fleming. I've got a trailer for you right now of my interview with Dr. Travis Brown, one of the co-hosts of the This Pathological Life podcast. So you mentioned you found your way into pathology. How did that happen? So when in, in medical school, it was, you know, I, I'm not quite sure. When you're in an area, you find out you keep on doing a ward round and some people are of the, oh, I'd love to do that one. And then they go to the next ward. Oh, I'd love to do that one. And unfortunately, I was the opposite. And I was like, no, I really don't want to do that one. I really don't want to do that. <laughs> um, and I had an inspiring lecturer. Her name is Professor Jane Dahlstrom who was always nice, who was always lovely, always had time for students, uh, and would always explain things uh, that made sense. Uh, and that was where pathology comes in. You sit there and just go, you know, you look at physiology, but you would sit there and go, okay, so blood pressure would go up and down. Okay, well, they've got, you know, a cardiomyopathy. Well, what explains why it's where it is? And so I would always go back to the pathology textbooks and that was what pathology is to me. It was understanding. It was knowing that this is how it works when we get a disease in this, oh, this is the effect. And so you could actually make sense of it, you know, extrapolate uh, why it behaved how it was. So it made sense and I enjoyed that part of it. You can hear more from Dr. Travis Brown in episode 26. I want to highlight just a couple of things about this interview with Karen Fleming today. The first is you can definitely hear the passion she has for her work. I mean, she really enjoys what she does. And honestly, I really think that's the case for the vast majority of people in pathology, lab medicine, and forensics. And the other thing is taking two seemingly unrelated areas and combining them together to create a new field. Now, obviously, she didn't create the field of forensic art, but what if you have an interest in pathology and some other area that seems like it's unrelated? Could you combine the two together to create a different career. So that's something to think about. Now, of course, I'll have links to everything we talked about today in the show notes, and you can follow the show on Twitter at People of Path or connect with me on LinkedIn. And if you like this episode, please share it with someone you know, and together let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.